This week on the show, we cover FreeBSD13.1's release, of course, Unix command line conventions over time, branching for NetBSD10, the micro beehive, own your calendar and contacts with OpenBSD, the PSR case for ZFS, which became ZFS, and more. This week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 456, FreeBSD 13.1, recorded on the 18th of May 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find the online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you would like to support this show with a little bit of a monetary contribution of yours, check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash bsdnow. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome. Uh, I should say sorry for all the Star Wars quotes in the last episodes that I did with Tom, but this is over now. You can all relax. And if we happen to have a recording on a Star Trek day, then we'll be happy to put Star Trek quotes in there as we are more Star Trek fans. Um, Every day <laughs> that isn't Star Wars day is Star Trek day. There's that, right? So <laughs> shots were fired. Um, but yes, we, we haven't have... had that much Star Wars on the show since when Chris Moore was hosting. Yeah, there's that. And I guess people will be happy to hear a couple of uh, familiar quotes here and there. Um, but we have more interesting news for you in the headlines this week. FreeBSD 13.1 has been released. Yes, 13.1 uh, is a bunch of uh, important improvements, but also uh, had a... Uh, a fun time getting to the release uh you know get everything working oh found a bug fix that get everything working oh OpenSL is gonna have a a new version because of a vulnerability we better wait for that and then again and again but yeah some big headlines uh open ssh has been updated to 8.8 p1 uh which also involves uh or related to that um they've did all the plumbing uh, the previous day to allow you to use FIDO and U2F hardware authenticators to be able to log in over SSH using the new public key types uh, ECDSA-SK and ED25519-SK, along with the corresponding certificate types. Uh, so it's now possible to authenticate for SSH using FIDO or U2F, uh, thanks to the newer version of OpenSSH and a bunch of plumbing done on the previous side. Then, as we mentioned, the new version of OpenSSL 1.1.10. Um, some other drivers got updated, including ICE, but another big one is that IWL Wi-Fi. Uh, so that's the newer generation Intel Wi-Fi, uh, along with the required KPI bits for the 802.11 compatibility layer, have all been implemented. So the IWM driver and the IWL driver for Intel wireless chips are much updated in 13.1, so you should have a better time with that. Uh, as well, ZFS has been updated to OpenZFS version 2.1.4. Uh, so all of that new stuff is there. And the EC2 images have are now built by default to boot with UEFI instead of legacy BIOS boot. Uh, and that's part of that ongoing project to make EC2 boot faster and faster and faster. Uh, and obviously using UEFI is quite a bit faster than the old BIOS way. Oh, yes. Booting uh, at all is much faster in this yes, release. Uh, a lot of work went into making that the case, uh, including a bunch of uh, simple changes. There's an extra flag dash I for the RTSOL, the router solicitation system. Um, 
so you can tell it not to wait for a random delay so that you're not, you know, waiting for a machine to boot because it's just sitting there sleeping because it wants to wait a while, things like that. A uh, bunch of other changes, uh, also including the new, uh, there's a new RC script called ZFS keys that allows you to manage automatically loading the decryption keys for ZFS encrypted data sets, as well as possibly de uh, a service you can stop to unload all those keys. Mm -hmm. Thanks to Modirum for sponsoring that work. The NVMe emulation in Beehive has been brought up to the 1.4 version of the NVMe spec. So that means uh, NVMe's, or Beehive's NVMe emulation is at all the latest fanciness and is nice and fast and works very well. Uh, and unlike Vertio means a driver is built into operating systems like Windows, so you don't have to try to sideload an extra driver to support uh, the virtual disk. Also, the NVMe, uh, NVMe driver uses a uh, new IOVEC construction so it can handle large IOs uh, without having to break them up into smaller ones. Uh, and that solved a problem in the UEFI driver that Rocky Linux, which is the kind of successor to CentOS, uses. Then all kinds of other changes. In particular, one that came back from uh, the current branch is the ch root program now has the option to allow it to be done as an unprivileged user so uh, you don't have to be root to do ch root anymore uh, although once you ch root nothing in that ch root can use set uid and things like that but that's you know normal a bunch of other interesting changes uh lots of good stuff but big things are you get newer zfs newer ssl newer ssh uh and newer wi-fi drivers ah yes that's what most people were looking for on laptops. Very nice. So yeah, uh, thanks for uh, the release engineering team and everyone who contributed code, committed it, uh, polished it even more and uh, reported bugs that they found in the release candidates or All the right. betas. One other fix that went in there was if you had certain Broadcom like server NICs on, especially in Dell hardware, uh, there was a problem with a bunch of them where VLANs wasn't working properly and that driver fix uh, went in in one of the later release candidates. Mm -hmm. So if you're fighting with trying to use VLANs on a, a Dell machine with FreeBSD, that is fixed now. Ah, excellent. Yeah, that's also good to know. Uh, yeah, and if you remember an earlier episode we recorded, uh, this release is dedicated to the memory of Bill Jolitz, the co-creator of 386BSD, uh, which formed the basis of FreeBSD 1.0. So uh, the dedication here says it all we stand on a, on the shoulders of giants yeah you know we're looking at almost four hundred thousand previous contributions from people and that's only if you go back um in a you know a certain way through the tree and that doesn't count you know when all the stuff got imported from the old bsds so yeah the total number of uh separate contributions people have made to the bsds that every new thing built on top of is quite impressive Oh yeah, that certainly is. Okay, we leave you uh, to explore the release notes uh, on your own and find uh, the interesting bits that you um, want to look at as well as the instructions how to install the system and upgrade to it. And uh, yeah, let the project know anything that you like about it as well as stuff that you find uh, either bug-wise or <laughs> other thing that's out of the ordinary. Meanwhile, we move along to Unix command line conventions over time. This is a, a blog we found and 
Uh, I think it's been featured on Hacker News even. So this blog post documents uh, the understanding of the authors of how the conventions for Unix command line syntax have evolved over time. It's not properly sourced and may well be quite wrong. Uh, they've not been using Unix until 1989. So they weren't there for the early days. Maybe someone has written a proper essay on this uh, with citations, but they're not uh, too eager to dig them up yet. Uh, okay, so they start with the early 1970s. In the beginning, in the first year or so of Unix, an ideal was formed. So for that, a Unix program would be like, it would be given some number of file names as command line arguments, and it would read those. If no file names were given, it would read the standard input. It would write its output to the standard output. There might be a small number of other fixed command line arguments. Options didn't exist. This allowed programs to be easily combined. One's program's output could be the input of another. There were of course variations. The echo command didn't read anything. The copy, move and rm command didn't output anything. However, the filter was the ideal. So if you cut something, a text file and then pipe that to WC, uh, you have the cut file reading all files with names uh, that end with a txt suffix, writing them to its standard output, which then is piped to the wc program, which reads its standard input. Uh, it wasn't given any file names there to count the words in them. In short, the file name above or the pipeline above counts words in all text files. This was quite powerful and it was also very simple. Yeah. Then they thought about options. You know, fairly quickly, the developers of Unix found that many programs would be more useful if the user could choose between minor variations of the program. For example, if you're using the sort program, you'd want to provide the option to output the input lines without consideration for upper versus lower case of text, right? So sort dash I or something, and you basically sort this uh, case insensitively instead of case sensitively. The command line option was added. This seemed to have the result of a bit of a uh, philosophical discussion among the developers. Some of them were adamant against adding more options for in the complexity it would bring, and others really liked them for the convenience. The side uh, factoring options won. You know, part of the original Unix philosophy is each program should do one thing and, and do it that well and not do other things. But, you know, do we need a separate I sort program uh, from, you know, we sort and I sort? Does that really make sense versus just sort with the optional dash I flag? So, you know, things have probably go gone in the too much in both directions. You know, sometimes we make a separate program when it really doesn't need to be. And sometimes you get programs that grow so many options that, you know, half of those probably should be a separate program instead. Like I think the netstat command in FreeBSD has a bunch of flags that as soon as you enable them, it does something completely different. Hmm. Like netstat-m outputs some information about the memory usage of the network stack. It does nothing like what running just netstat by itself would do. Yeah, yeah, it does that. <laughs> so to make command line parsing easy to implement, options always started with a single dash and consisted of a single character. Multiple options could be packed after one dash. So foo dash a space dash b space dash c could just be shortened to foo dash abc. If not immediately, then soon after, an additional twist was added. Some options required a value. For example, the sort program, you could give it the key, like which column to sort by. Uh, where n is an integer specifying, you know, which, based on the delimiter, which column you want to sort by. Uh, and so you had sort dash k space one. Uh, and it, I'm not sure how it works with if you just do sort dash k one, 
um, because then is dash one an option, uh, uh, an extra flag that, you know, dash K one should be equivalent to dash K space dash one. Uh, but that's not the same thing. Uh, and I think they'll get into it down here a little bit. Uh, the, the thing with optional arguments. So originally BSD and, and Unix didn't support optional arguments. So a command either was just a flag or it was an, an option that took an extra argument like dash K or dash K space one. Uh, it was one or the other. It either had an extra thing that came after it or it didn't. But GNU added an extension where a, a flag could optionally have an argument sometimes. So sometimes you could use it just by itself, dash, you know, G, or sometimes you could specify uh, a number to go with it. Uh, the problem is, how do you tell the difference between dash G space three, where three is the argument to the dash G flag, and dash G space three, where three is a file that you want to operate on. Um, and so for the GNU optional arguments extension, all optional arguments are always direct without the space tacked on. But then that breaks the rule that you're supposed to be able to combine those things, right? If I want to do dash G four, how does it tell the difference between that four being an argument to dash G or dash four being its own argument, which is very common for commands like ping to have dash four to mean use IPv4, not whatever, you know, if DNS returns V4 and V6, specifically use V4. And it gets very complicated. Uh, I think GNU kind of solved that one by doing like dash G equals four or something, but it gets a little wonky. Uh, and then we got the uh, long options. So you still see some applications, like, like OpenSSL is an example of terribleness, where it uses like dash display and then that maybe takes an argument like colon zero or OpenSSL has like dash speed. Um, whereas, you know, that's supposed to be the same as dash S, uh, dash P, dash E, dash E, dash D. And the second E is kind of weird uh, and so on. But no, they decided that was all one word and that you couldn't combine flags there. Uh, whereas the better answer to that was, okay, if you want a long option where you spell out the argument, then uh, we should use two dashes. So, you know, dash dash color equals auto or dash dash color equals never. Uh, that makes sense. But when you have a whole word, but one dash, that's, that's wrong. But a bunch of things do it that way. And it was too late to change it. <laughs> and you get all kinds of problems. And then uh, in the late 90s or so, then subcommands started to show up. Uh, you know, a response to the many Unix programs gaining a large number of options that were in fact not optional at all. They were really subcommands. Thus, a program might have options like dash dash decrypt and dash dash encrypt. Uh, it turns out you can't use both of those and you have to have at least one of them. And so they're not really optional flags. They should be subcommands. Uh, this turned out to be a little hard for many people to deal with and subcommands were a simplification. Um, the other thing subcommands let you do is have the flag have different meaning under different subcommands, right? Uh, I don't know. I have a good example off the top of my head, but uh, I believe that the oldest program that used subcommands is the version control system SCCS, which uh, came out in 1972, uh, but I haven't been able to find out which versions added those subcommands. Another popular one was CVS from the 1990. 
uh, seems to have those, you know, you had CVS check in and check out or, you know, commit and uh, check out and so on. Um, and so, you know, you'd have this sub command and then the flags would come after it. Or, and a modern version of that is if you look at like the FreeBSD package command, PKG, um, it's especially interesting because you have PKG, then you can have some flags uh, like dash R for root or whatever, and then a sub command and then more flags. And the, the flags that come before the subcommand are for all of package. And the command the flags that come after the subcommand are specific to the subcommand and might be different across different subcommands. You know, package query uses almost the whole alphabet for things and obviously <laughs> uses it for things that aren't necessarily the same as what the flags for package install are and so on. Hmm. You know, when you package query, you know, dash F for force probably doesn't make sense, but maybe it's dash F for filter or something and so on. Or file. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Later versions of control systems such as Subversion, Arch, and Git follow the subcommand pattern. Version control systems seem to inherently require the user to do a number of distinct operations which fit well into the subcommand style, uh, as also avoiding adding large numbers of individual programs. Can you imagine if each Git subcommand was a separate program instead? Mm. That would be, you know, your path would just be full of Git somethings. <laughs> Yeah, not very likely. And if you miss just one of those, the whole thing wouldn't work. Yeah, subcommands add further complication to command line syntax, though, uh, when inevitably uh, combined with the options. The main command may have options called global options, and then there might be options that are specific to a subcommand and so on. So in summary, the early Unix developers who feared complexity were right, but also wrong. It might be intolerable to have you know, a separate program for every combination of a program with options. Um, you know, to be fair, I don't think that's what they were really advocating. That was kind of, you know, people taking it to the extreme, but uh, they advocated tools that can be combined and uh, for, to simplify things with as few tools as possible. And I think that makes sense. Um, you know, there's a couple of cases of commands where a certain flag makes the command do something like almost completely different. And, you know, it feels like those should be separate commands uh you know it gets a little complicated with source code because we also have uh the interesting kind of idiom we use in in unix where we have the exact same source code hard linked to four different names and based mm -hmm. on the names the program behaves differently so for example on freebsd there's the command md5 which will calculate the md5 of a file it's actually the same binary, all hard-linked multiple times for MD5, SHA-1, SHA-256, SHA-512, uh, Skeen, and a bunch of other ones. Then the program looks at the name of the program you invoked and decides which algorithm to use. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so that made, you know, made it easy to have all these separate commands, each one doing the right thing, but uh, all using the same code. Oh, look, and I just noticed earlier when they were talking about the uh, long ops with the double dash. Ah, uh, that's another thing I, I kind of skipped over when I read it. Um, for option argument parsing, there is the double dash idiom. So if you do, if you're trying to RM a file that happens to start with a dash, right? If you have a file somebody's created called dash F and you want to delete it, well, RM dash F is RM force. And then you, it's like you didn't specify a file. What do you want? Hmm. <laughs> so that's where you can do rm dash 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 f. 
and the dash dash tells GitOps to stop parsing. Everything after this is just file names, uh, which can protect you in that case uh, uh, from dealing with file names that are weird uh, or just other options. Because another difference between uh, the original BSD GetOpt and the Linux version, the GNU version, is that in the BSD version, you'd have the command, you'd have all of the flags, and then the file names. Once you have a file yeah. name, you can't put a flag after that file name. But the GNU extensions allowed you to intermix them. So you could have a file name and then a flag, right? Like you could do ls-al a directory and it'll list it. Uh, but on BSD, if you do ls directory name dash al, it'll list that directory in normal mode and then tell you there's no file called dash al, uh, which is different than on, on Unix where, or on GNU where it would enable that dash a and dash l flags after the fact, basically. Yep. And it gets all kinds of interesting. Oh, yeah. And to finish in the summary, uh, if we were redesigning Unix from scratch and didn't need to be backwards compatible, we could introduce a completely new syntax that is systematic, easy to remember, easy to use, and easy to implement. Alas, none of this explains DD. <laughs> no, yeah, DD is extra special. I think it, DD is because it was taken from an IBM tool, if I'm not mistaken could be and they massaged it to be as similar as possible on unix uh to the ibm version maybe not so it says the dd command first appeared in at&t unix uh version 5 but yes i'm pretty sure that the it it was a clone of an existing tool from a non unix and that's why it's got the slightly weird syntax um mm. That's probably a different blog article. Yeah. <laughs> the origins of DD. Somebody should write that, though, and uh, send it in yeah. to us. So please do that. Oh, yeah. That's certainly interesting for the history uh, of the tools we use every day or every second. Yeah. Anyway. Use DD a lot. Yeah. Okay, let's look at our news roundup this week with branching for NetBSD 10. The uh, message here from the NetBSD mailing list is from current users and reads after a bit more than two years after the first NetBSD 9 release, 9.0 happened February 14, 2020, and nearly a year after the last, so far, NetBSD 9 release, uh, 9.2 happened on May 12, 2021, we are in the final steps to prepare for the next really great release. We are planning to branch NetBSD 10 in about a week from now. So that message is from uh, May 2nd. And so it's a bit of delay, but um, it's definitely worth mentioning. Uh, it seems that current is in good shape overall, and we hope to get the big blockers resolved before the release. They have a list on the NetBSD wiki. And the most user-visible fallout preventing testing of the new beta versions is likely the DRM slash KMS update and the current massive fallout on Intel i9-15 chips. Uh, they have a couple of uh, PRs listed there in the bug tracker. Uh, we hope to get this issue resolved soonish. <laughs> I like that. But couldn't allow them to further delay this long overdue branch. We don't yet know how long the branch will take to the first release, that BSD 10, but hope it will not be more than three months. But note that all my personal estimates on NetBSD 10 have been off by years, so this might be a correction we will once 
Uh, we'll see once I915 works again. This is from Martin uh, Husman. Yeah, I saw later in the thread somebody said that I915 is working for them, so at least it's starting to work for some people. Mm -hmm. Good. Yeah, and if there's progress or a release even, you will hear it, of course, on the show. Next up, we have a micro beehive. How to generate a bootable working minimal installation of FreeBSD for a Beehive VM. Uh, so this basically allows you to uh, create a minimalistic image of uh, FreeBSD for Beehive using the jail to ISO script that originally came from the CBSD project. Uh, as a result of this work, you get a 12 megabyte distribution kit and a working network stack with the ability to remotely access it via SSH, as well as a set of basic Unix utilities. The consumption of RAM by such an install in multi-user mode uh, does not exceed 80 megabytes. Uh, so they show here uh, a micro beehive running using only 80 megabytes of RAM and you know the distribution, the compressed distribution set is only 12 megabytes. Mm -hmm. Pretty fancy. Cool. Uh, so it can be used as firmware when you're building a better product or service, and it's great for just being able to spin up a bunch of VMs and test things. For example, the initial micro container image with SSH access was used in their MyB project when creating a Kubernetes cluster of FreeBSDs. In this case, the FreeBSD jail is created as a jump host environment uh, for accessing the Kubernetes cluster, which has utilities uh, for working with K8s like kubectl and Helm and so on. Uh, they also go a little further and use CBSD's jail to ISO script to get the VM image. At the same time, the minimalism of the kernel is achieved by eliminating all the options drivers that are not going to make sense in the VM. Basically, the uh, network stack, the vertio drivers, and uh, so on. And so the kernel is only two megabytes instead of much more than that. So I, I was thinking when I read this, this could be a nice talk for a conference like EuroBSDCon. Uh, yeah. So they talk a little bit about how you do it. So you can use CBSD jcreate uh, to create the jail and then apply some settings to it, set what you want, uh, you know, strip out all the files you don't want um, and get it stripped down. They also set up uh, auditing even here in this. You can use audit D to find all the files that you end up using uh, to decide what is safe to delete. Then uh, you can use sysrc to set a bunch of options in the jail. Uh, copy the things around you need, like the SSH keys and the PAM settings. Uh, strip all the debug info out of the binaries to make sure everything's as small as it can be. Uh, then you do uh, set the kernel to use the Beehive kernel. Uh, get just the kernel modules you want, vertio and so on, VTNet. Uh, and then you can use the jail to ISO script to turn that into a tiny image. Here, where they found that. Uh, for the VNC console to work properly in Beehive, you also need to have the VT and VTEFIFB options. Oh, otherwise, it can't display anything. Right, on the that console. But yeah, and then they have a little video at the bottom showing uh, the machine booting up and having you know only the very basic uh, required bits. Okay, nice. It's a cool way to make a very small VM. Yeah, for... Um testing purposes or ISOs from a working beehive. Uh, it's uh, an interesting project. Uh, and the next item will also be interesting for the people who want to run their own stuff. Uh, own your calendar and contacts with OpenBSD by Cal, hopefully that's properly pronounced, and free and open source software Android over at baak6.com. 
So they have a tutorial there and they explain how to use Baikal running on OpenBSD to host their own calendar and address book and how to consume them with the FOSS apps on Android. Uh, there's a bit of introduction there for people who have never heard about these. They don't like the Google Calendar and other services they provide. They want to run their own show. So what is Baikal? Baikal is a lightweight CalDAV and CardDAV server. It's written in PHP and uses MySQL or SQLite as a database. Uh, it's a great example of a small and simple piece of software which does one thing and does it well. And it does, well, it does two things, but it does them both really well. Okay, <laughs> when it boils down to it, uh, that they, you can self-host a Baikal server that allows you to manage calendars and address books using CalDAV and CardDAV via HTTP. They have a section about CalDAV and CardDAV, but I guess this is pretty much self-explanatory these days. It's the standard for web distributed authoring and versioning, and so uh, pretty ubiquitous. Yeah, and they're basically how you do uh, cal how you the internet standard for syncing calendars, like same thing. If you are using Google as your calendar or whatever, and you want to add a calendar from somebody else or something else, you'll get one of these CalDAV yeah. links. Um, and it's basically by using HTTP posts and puts, you can modify the calendar and so on. So CalDAV does a calendar and CardDAV is like cards in a Rolodex if you're <laughs> that old. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's a little card that has all the contact information for somebody. Think of it like a business card index. Uh, and so the card is each individual person and you can use card dev to, to manage all those entries for your contact list. Yep. Uh, then I have a section about OpenBSD, but well, we can skip that. Pretty much uh, every listener to this episode and many others before uh, know about that. Uh, but this FOSS Android, what's that? By FOSS Android, they mean a free and in freedom and, uh, and in beer this case, an open source software calendar and contacts applications for Android. They use the ones from the simple mobile tools. They are really good, but more on that uh, a bit further down. Uh, if you're on iOS, you can still follow this tutorial and skip the Android parts. Uh, as for the iOS calendar applications, they guess you can use the built-in one. I'm not sure what FOSS calendar applications are available for iOS. Well, they can also use the CalDAV and CardDAV things just fine. Okay, they start the tutorial with setting up Baikal uh, after you installed OpenBSD, of course. Uh, and get it to the network. Uh, you do package underscore add Baikal. Uh, before continuing or configuring that, you probably want to sort out an SSL certificate for your web server. It's quick and painless to do. The OpenBSD handbook has a great documentation about that. And then they set up HTTPD to point to Baikal. They provide the uh, config file, HTTPD conf, that you need to create or make changes to if you have one already. Uh, that explains there's a certain block that points to the uh, HTTPS section and the second server block just redirects any non-HTTPS to the HTTPS section. Next up, you would set up the uh, database for it and have a choice uh, between MySQL and SQLite. And here they use SQLite since it's a lot simpler and suitable for their needs, but uh, MySQL works just fine as well. Package add php-po underscore SQLite is what they do. They change the PHP 8 ini to uh, uncommend a couple sections there to do the PDO SQL light. Right, to load the, the a, module. So basically that's a, a module for PHP that does the PDO is like PHP or PHP's data object thing. It's, it's their API for doing databases. And then they use RCCTL to enable PHP uh, FPM as well as HTTPD and start them afterwards. Then you can navigate to your uh, web server that you set up and complete the setup on the web. 
create accounts and stuff. And then they go on with setting up the Android bits. Uh, they use the F-Droid to install these applications, um, but you might be able to find them on other platforms too. Uh, they set up Def X. Well, that's X5, X to the power of five. Um, and further down, yeah, it's basically a walkthrough of the of the whole settings. And then basically providing the URLs to those uh, CalDAV and CardDAV endpoints. And now you're phone can talk back and forth on those protocols and manage mm -hmm. your address book. Cool. Pretty straightforward. And I guess this can be adapted to other BSDs. Uh, this is not too open BSD specific. Okay. We can't do an episode with Alan without uh, some uh, ZFS contents. And here is one uh, tweet we found 20 years ago. Jeff filed a PS arc case for the ZFS file system. Yeah. So this is one of the original, uh, not even quite the design document. It's the ideas before they actually had designs for them spells out all the things they wanted ZFS to be able to do and how that might work. And, you know, a lot of that is exactly what we got, and uh, it's good reading. But I found a couple of sections under, like, 4.6 that cover things that never actually ended up happening. Uh, or one of them that didn't end up happening until, like, a year or two ago. Uh, you know, 20 years later. So the first one were there was Hot Space. So instead of a hot spare where you have an extra disk plugged in and you're not using it until a disk fails and then you switch over to it, uh, the obvious problem with a hot spare uh, is that A, it's old and it's not really being used up until you need it. So it may be have starting to fail uh, and you won't know it because it, you know, during a scrub, there's nothing on it. So it doesn't get poked and so on. Um, and then the other problem you get is that, okay, one disk in my VDEV has failed. So now what we're going to do is read from every other disk in the VDEV, all the remaining disks, and write out to one disk. Well, if you're reading from many and writing to one, you're going to bottleneck on the speed that the one can write. Uh, and that turns out to be make it slow. So uh, something that ZFS didn't have for the first 20 years, but uh, recently if you use the DRAID or distributed RAID uh, feature VDEV type, then it does have this idea of a distributed spare. So you tell it, you know, here's all my disks and I want to effectively have one or two whole spare disks. So then it will carve out, you know, a couple of gigs or whatever from every disk in the pool or in the VDEV to make a virtual spare. Uh, and so that space is basically just not used uh, normally. And each disk is just that little bit smaller. Um, but you now have effectively one or two whole spare disks uh, of space just spread across all of the disks evenly. So then when a disk dies, uh, you can now copy from every disk and write to every disk in the in that VDEV because the spare is basically spread out across all of the disks. Uh, so that means it's much faster to do the recovery to the spare because it involves every disk in the VDEV instead of only writing to one of them. And it's all the disks that are online. So if, you know, they're much more likely, like you, you've been monitoring them and they've been getting used and you are have much more confidence that they're going to keep working than a disk that's been powered on but doing nothing for the last two years or whatever. Hmm. Plus, you know, uh, at that point, if you do the distributed spare thing, instead of a regular spare, you're getting that little bit of extra performance of using all of the disks and spreading the spare across 
a little bit across all the disks instead of having it just sitting there not being used until something fails. So that was a feature that they thought about 20 years ago, but didn't manage to make until recently. Uh, and it only works for D-RAID. It's, you still can't do uh, hot space as spares for like a RAID Z, uh, partly because of mm. the way RAID Z allocates space. Turned out to be complicated. But anyway, then we have two features that never actually happen. First is real-time remote replication. So it says the DMU or data management unit uh, is described in a bit more detail up earlier in the doc and other places, but uh, basically the DMU is the lower half of the file system where it takes basically an object number and an offset and allows you to read and write uh, data. So the DMU supports real-time remote replication. Unlike traditional daily backups or batched remote replication, real-time remote replication ensures that the remote copy of the files is always consistent and never more than a few seconds at a date. Uh, the ZFS architecture naturally supports remote replication. All data and metadata are stored in objects, and the only operation an object can have are read, write, and free. This makes the protocol very simple. Reads don't need to be sent over the wire, of course, and writes and frees can be sent asynchronously within transaction group boundaries. Uh, the only explicit synchronization required is a once per transaction group and you know once every few seconds uh, back at this time a transaction group was only once every 30 seconds or when there was too much data um and eventually became every five seconds instead anyway thus uh remote replication of dmu objects is not latency sensitive all it requires is sufficient bandwidth which is usually cheaper uh by the day so that's not actually happened yet uh you can get pretty close to it with the batch replication uh, but there's not something where you just keep a connection open all the time and are constantly feeding uh, the data across. And then the other one is user undo, which I think reminds me a bit of the uh, a feature HammerFS has. So it says, finally, while all of this technology is helpful, the most common cause of data loss today is user error. Any serious attempt at improving data availability must address this. Therefore, in addition to the snapshot facility described earlier, ZFS should provide a user undo. This allows end users to quickly and easily recover recently deleted or overwritten files without sysadmin intervention. Uh, so since ZFS is copy on write anyway, you know, when you overwrite a file, the old version's still there and, you know, we'll just get marked as free space eventually. But we could defer freeing that for a while and somehow expose those files and let you still get the previous versions of the files until we eventually need to free some stuff to keep enough free space. So HammerFS has something like this where you can purge those by doing like a, a vacuum or something they call it, but basically allows you to access previous versions of a file without having to have created a snapshot. Uh, hmm. Yeah, it's interesting here. It's still possible in ZFS. I think the main thing would just be deciding how long you would let people keep doing that. Or the, basically the thing you want to avoid is keeping things as long as possible, meaning that you eventually have no free space. And then when you go to free the space, or when you need the free space, you have to go and find some stuff to free and that might take a while and you don't want to slow writing down. So then you have to decide on how much free space you want to keep all the time and then selectively go and, and trigger those freeze of older stuff eventually. Uh, and it gets a little complicated there. Uh, also, because I don't know, 
I think you would need the uber block in order to be able to properly read an older version of the file. And it turns out we don't keep that many uber blocks. Hmm. But. 128 is that? Uh, so there were, yeah, there are 128 if you're using a normal 512 byte sector disk. But if you use a 4K disk, you only have 31. Because we also stole one of the slots for the ZPool checkpoint feature, I think it was. Or the MMP feature. Oh, yeah. One of the features stole one of the slots. Which is fine when you have 128 and gets less fine when you only have 32. Um, and so you can still do this a little bit with the, the rewind feature in ZFS and you know specifically import an older transaction group. But you know they're talking about being able to do this online. Uh, and I think it's all still mostly theoretically possible. It's just a matter of it gets really complicated when you start looking at um, accounting for the free space. Uh, it, how confusing is it to the user if when they delete a file, they don't get the free space back right away because they still have access to the file. Um, but also, you know, if they have the free space and they start using it and then the files disappear, even though normally it, it would have still been there, like it's very confusing. Uh, and mostly you just don't want to defer the freeing too long because then you could end up in a case where you need that free space. Uh, and the other thing is ZFS uses the uh, Metaslabs to account for the space. Uh, and, you know, it somewhat tries to reuse the existing space and avoid fragmentation. Whereas if you kept old versions of the files too long, then you might end up spreading things out and making some of the fragmentation worse. Mm -hmm. So as a design document, this is pretty much what we have, besides the few points that Alan mentioned. And it even has like cost of effort and prototype costs in there. So the estimates were quite good. And the stuff that we have is fairly close to what this document details. And who knows, maybe someone sits down and implements the missing bits, which only are yeah, a few. Uh, you know, I think they, they, they talk a bit about encryption, which obviously didn't show up until much later. And luckily didn't involve DES or Blowfish. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, looking back from today to the to the implementation notes there, that's certainly an achievement. Yeah. Uh, it's got a bunch of references, papers like uh, file system design for an NFS file server appliance from 1994's Winter Usenix or... Uh, the scalability of the XFS file system from 1996, uh, or how ext3 journaling works. I'm basically looking at all the things other file systems have done to try to add some of these, not even the features, just the, the durability of ZFS to existing file systems, and instead saying, no, we will just build something new from scratch that builds on all this. Yeah, yeah certainly came a long way, and the journey still continues. Perfect time to jump into our feedback and questions. Uh, we get feedback at bsdnow.tv. Uh, that's our email address where you can reach us, this show, and our editor. And people have done this and should continue to do this. Otherwise, this section will be very empty. Uh, Scott is the one featured uh, here first. Uh, Scott has a question about FreeBSD and supercomputing. And that goes like the following. FreeBSD and supercomputing question mark. After traveling down a Wikipedia rabbit hole that leads to supercomputers, I came across the statement that since 2017, 
all the top 500 supercomputers have run Linux. This struck me as odd, and as a FreeBSD fan, depressing, since one always hears how FreeBSD is designed that is perfect for backend servers. Linux might win the desktop over BSD for understandable reasons, but why does it win HPC, the high-performance computing? With BSD's networking advantage, it seemed this networking performance could uh, would come into play perfectly when needing to interconnect a lot of nodes. And a company using FreeBSD would be free to leverage the HPC solution for more commercial uses than with Linux due to the licensing difference. I've read some explanations, but most of them strike me as the same reasoning, but that Windows had a near monopoly on desktop PCs, stuff like inertia and momentum. And everyone using Linux in HPC simply because everyone is using it. Some of it is just misinformed or incorrect. BSC doesn't support InfiniBand, etc., which isn't true. Uh, one would hope that the same people who criticize the Windows mono monoculture on the desktop would also see the negatives of having a worse monoculture in the HPC world. So I ask you guys, why do you think Linux has completely decimated BSD in HPC? What could be done to address this? Or is there any uh, already stuff being done to address that? Do you know of any supercomputers running BSD? Uh, so if only Linux had only decimated FreeBSD, which is reduce it by 10%. <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, it mostly comes down to the same reason people use Linux for anything. Um, when most universities and so on started using Linux for teaching instead of BSD, then it's what students knew how to do. And so it's what the students set up on the machines they prototyped these clusters out of. And then when it's where people experiences, it's where it ends up happening. And the other part of it comes down to you know, when somebody wants a supercomputer, they reach out to one of a small handful of companies to go build a supercomputer. And those companies uh, use Linux because that's what they've always used or what they've been using uh, or because that's what the users have experience with. And so that's what the users are going to want. Uh, it is partly the, it gets used because it's what get everybody uses and it's what everybody uses because it's what get used. And it's kind of this catch 22 of, you know, Nobody wants to have this one machine that's weird and different. And having one big supercomputer, you cannot just sit two side by side and make a operating system comparison. Like, is it faster with this one? Because you have these huge machines and they're already costly. You cannot buy a second one to make a comparison install. And once you have the install done, then you're probably happy that it's all running and don't want to do it again. Yeah, and it depends what it's for. You know, if you end up, trying to do something that involves a lot of GPUs, then, you know, can you get the right drivers for BSD and so on? Um, so yeah, I'm not aware of any supercomputers. I know lots of servers running BSD, but I don't know about many supercomputers. And most of the even really large installations I know of are more about storage than trying to be a supercomputer. Yeah. You only hear from these supercomputers once they've broken a new record, but they don't have specific details about them maybe there is a website for them but you don't get any updated news about hey we're running this operating system now maybe that's not the major focus of them anyway but definitely an interesting question maybe someone of our listeners knows more and has i don't know access or heard about this then let us know and we'll be happy to uh, link this into our show notes so thanks scott for this question and next up is nick with thanks and some shout outs uh, this is uh, longer, but goes like the following. Hi, everyone, which is Alan, myself, JT, and TJ. Thanks so much for what you do. You're welcome. I have been lurking around the edges of BSD space for the last 20 years and really enjoy keeping up to date through this podcast. 
Apologies for the long rambling email, but I've been beaning meaning to update my blog for around 10 years. But life happens, so there's a long rambling email for you to enjoy. Uh, so he talks about how he was introduced to BSD. And uh, I can skip a couple parts. It's linked in the in full in the show notes. Uh, but... Ah, so he, he has bought a System76 Lemur Pro with a USB 3 dock, uh, which runs two external monitors and provides gigabit Ethernet and USB, etc. Okay, so he was luckily able to get some quirks into the 13.0 release to support the keyboard on the core boot-based laptop, still poking about with the audio configuration and get his headphone audio to work perfectly, but generally I have a system for what I need. The warm fuzzy feeling running BSD gives me uh, seem so far outweigh any of the current inconveniences. Yeah. One interesting thing they uh, mentioned here was using a port net slash Wi-Fi box, which basically sets up a tiny Alpine Linux VM under Beehive. It uses about 200 megabytes of RAM and PCI pass through the Wi-Fi uh, and use the Linux driver to make the Wi-Fi work uh, and then route that uh, via the network there uh, and getting better Wi-Fi speed. I didn't know that somebody had wrapped that up into a nice uh, port, so that's really nice to have. Yeah, they mentioned 13.1 RC2 uh, with speeds only at 54 megabits per second, but uh, since 13.1 is out now, maybe that has well, changed think, already. Uh, yeah, so 13.1 has support for the card now, but I think it's still not actually going to use like uh, the, the newer Wi-Fi 6 speeds, uh, whereas doing it in the Linux VM will. Yeah, there's other ports mentions like HW Probe, um, so it gives you a really nice interface uh, so to tell you what's on your system in case you're still shopping for one. Then there's ACPI underscore call, which allows or allowed him to write some simple scripts to access some BIOS features that would normally require some drivers somewhere for things like special function keys and charging thresholds that you would often find on laptops. Uh, with System76 being open source, he was able to poke around their repositories for Linux drivers and utilities to find the right parameters to talk to get the uh, things done. Cool. Yeah, getting the, the media keys to do the right thing when they're different on every laptop can be pretty handy. Uh, yeah. And he talks about SysUtils barrier as well as SysUtils synergy to have uh, one keyboard and mouse on multiple uh, PCs. That's really nice to move uh, around between them. Uh, seems to be yeah. pretty happy about so, the System76 Lemur Pro. Yeah, um, the full email is in the show notes if you want to go read a bit more about it. Uh, but yeah, thanks, Nick, for sending all those details about getting that laptop working. I know uh, a bunch of people will be interested in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially when they're still uh, shopping for one and wanting to make sure that everything works, that they can use all the components yeah and he also mentions uh using that uh acpi call tool to remap caps lock to control uh on his laptop ah excellent <laughs> all right i think that's it for this episode and the feedback we had uh thank you for listening and stay tuned for next week where we have another one <laughs> <laughs>